Thus spoke Zarathustra. First part. Chapter 2. On the Professorial Chairs of Virtue. A wise man was praised to Zarathustra for knowing how to talk well about sleep and about virtue. It was said that he was greatly revered and rewarded for this, and that all the young men were sitting before his professorial chair. Zarathustra went to him and sat with all the young men before his chair, and thus spoke the wise man. Honor and shame in the face of sleep, that is the first thing. And avoid all those who sleep badly and stay awake at night. Even the thief feels shame in the face of sleep. He always steals softly through the night. But shameless is the night watchman. Shamelessly he bears his horn. It is no simple art to sleep. It is necessary, after all, to stay awake the whole day before. Ten times a day must you overcome yourself. That makes for a fine weariness, and is opium for the soul. Ten times must you reconcile yourself with yourself again, for overcoming is bitterness, and the unreconciled sleep badly. Ten truths a day must you discover, else you will still be seeking truth at night, and your soul will stay hungry. Ten times a day must you laugh and be cheerful, else your stomach will disturb you during the night, that father of sorrow. There are few who know this, but one must possess all the virtues in order to sleep well. Shall I bear false witness? Shall I commit adultery? Shall I covet my neighbor's maidservant? All that would not sit well with sound sleep. And even if one has all the virtues, there is one more thing to know how to do, to send even the virtues to sleep at the proper time. That they might not quarrel among themselves, the good little females, and over you, you unfortunate man. Peace with God and one's neighbor. Thus does sound sleep will it and peace even with one's neighbor's devil, else he will be haunting you at night. Honor authority and obedience, and even crooked authority. Thus does sound sleep will it. How can I help it if power likes to walk on crooked legs? For me, the best shepherd will always be he who leads his sheep to the greenest pasture. This sits well with the soundest sleep. I do not want much honor, nor great treasures. That inflames the spleen. But one sleeps badly without a good name and a modest treasure. The company of a few is more welcome to me than evil company. But they must come and go at the right time. This sits well with the soundest sleep. Most pleasing to me are the poor in spirit, for they promote sleep. Blessed are they, especially when one always concedes that they are right. Thus runs the course of the day for the virtuous. And when night comes, I am careful not to summon sleep. 
He will not be summoned. Sound sleep. He who is lord of the virtues. Instead, I think what I have done and thought that day. Ruminating, I ask myself, patient as a cow. So, what were your ten overcomings? And what were the ten reconciliations, and the ten truths, and the ten laughters with which my heart enjoyed itself? Weighing such considerations, and rocking in the cradle of forty thoughts, I am suddenly overwhelmed by sleep, the unsummoned lord of the virtues. Sleep taps on my eyes, then they grow heavy. Sleep touches my mouth, then it stays open. Verily, on soft souls it comes to me, that dearest of thieves, and steals my thoughts away. Stupid I stand there, like this professorial chair. But not for long do I stand like this. I am already lying down. When Zarathustra heard the wise man speak thus, he laughed in his heart, for a light had thereby dawned upon him, and he spoke thus to his heart. What a fool this wise man is with his forty thoughts, and yet I believe he is quite expert in sleeping. Fortunate is he who dwells in the vicinity of this wise man. Such sleep is infectious and can infect one even through a thick wall. There is even magic in his professorial chair, and not in vain have the young men sat before the preacher of virtue. His wisdom is to stay awake in order to sleep soundly. And verily, if there were no sense to life, and I had to choose nonsense, this would be for me, too, the most choice-worthy nonsense. Now I clearly understand what people were once seeking above all when they sought teachers of virtue. Sound sleep for themselves, and opiate virtues to go with it. For all these much-lauded wise men with their professorial chairs, wisdom was sleep without dreams. They knew no better sense for life. And even today there are still some who are like this preacher of virtue, and not always as honest, but their time is up. And not much longer will they stand. They are already lying down. Blessed are these sleepyheads, for they shall soon drop off. Thus spoke Zarathustra. Hey everyone, and welcome to the second chapter of the first book of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Uh, last time we talked about the very first entry in the actual book, outside of the prologue, on the three transformations, where Nietzsche and Zarathustra go through the three transformations of the spirit, that uh, individuals who are serious about improving themselves in particular ways go through. First they have the spirit of the camel that likes to take a lot upon themselves and weigh themselves down with uh, heavy thoughts or heavy challenges and really uh, try and improve their strengths by doing so. The second transformation was, of course, the spirit turning into a lion. Uh, the lion of the spirit is needed to create freedom for itself, to say no to duty, to say no to the values of things that have been established for thousands of years. The analogy we used was a basketball player who's really, really reverent towards the greats that have come before him, 
and in his pursuit to become a great basketball player himself, has to say no, has to set out his own values, set out his own techniques and strategies because he's gotten to a point where what's been done in the past is no longer suitable for where he is. So he needs to say no to his heroes and embark sort of on his own. And that takes us to the third transformation of the spirit where the spirit becomes a child, uh, which is sort of a playful, self-propelling entity that makes up its own things, makes up its own values, makes up its own ways of doing things, and is therefore sort of a creative entity that, after having gone through the first two stages of taking on everything that's been done well in the past, all the values, strategies, tactics, ideas that the camel takes on, going through the process of evolving into the spirit of the lion and creating freedom for yourself and being able to say no to the things you once revered so highly, and then becoming a creative entity, uh, Nietzsche is really setting up the book in that first section saying the type of person that you're going to become by going through these transformations uh, over the course of reading this book and really challenging yourself on some of the ways that you see the world, some of the things that you value, and really taking a critical look at yourself to make those improvements, it's going to be a painful process. But by the end of it, you'll have gone through these stages, so you'll be able to recognize these stages more or less when you're going through them. But after having gone through them, you'll, you'll, you'll be more of who you are. You'll become a more developed version of yourself, a higher level version of yourself who has really critically analyzed everything that you, you care about and you're now operating at a much higher level, a much more refined level in those things. Uh, so that that's the first section. Again, I said it before, but I'll say it again. I love how that's the first section because Nietzsche is just setting up right away uh, the idea that if you take this stuff seriously, it's going to be sort of a psychologically trying experiment. But that's the sort of disposition that you need to to become more of who you are over the course of some of the self-critical thinking that Nietzsche and Zarathustra are going to be bringing upon you in this book. Um, similarly, from a structural perspective, uh, section two is, it's a very different type of message, but it's very important to keep in mind when we get into this book. And so it's also very cool that Nietzsche put this section right up front, uh, even though it's, again, sort of a weird section that's, it's not written about camels and lions and children. This one's about someone talking about sleep. It's not even Zarathustra talking, it's someone else. And so it's a sort of a weird section in a weird book, but uh, hopefully I can explain some more of the dispositional qualities that Nietzsche is trying to impress upon us in how we approach this book and how we approach the self-transformational journey that we're on uh, as we read through the rest of this book. So in this section on the professorial chairs of virtue, Zarathustra finds himself in front of sort of another old wise man, different from the one we met in the prologue, but another one who had been, who's well known, he's famous for being able to talk well of virtue and sleep. And so most of the section is this guy talking about sleep and, you know, not taking things too hard and trying to reconcile yourself uh, throughout the day and, you know, challenging yourself 10 times a day to overcome yourself and 10 times a day to reconcile yourself and discovering 10 truths a day and laughing 10 times a day and, you know, not 
not taking anything too extreme, but you know, challenging yourself a good measure to make sure that at the end of the day you can sleep. And that's really the impression that I think that you're 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 meant to get from reading this section is this sort of famous wise man talking about sleep. He a lot of the things that he's talking about, even in those things I just mentioned, overcoming yourself, reconciling yourself, discovering some truth, laughing and being cheerful, these are all messages that Zarathustra himself preaches. And so it's a bit strange because later in the book we're going to find all sorts of things about overcoming yourself and getting better and reconciling yourself with yourself and discovering truth and laughing and being cheerful. We're going to see all these sorts of messages so it's sort of weird to come across right at the beginning a section where Zarathustra hears someone preaching things similar to his own message, but then after the lecture sort of laughing to himself and saying, wow, this guy's wrong and all these sleepy heads are soon going to drop off. And the thing, once you get into this book and start understanding more of Nietzsche's thought and the things that Zarathustra is saying, the thing that stands out to me as being the most important message from this chapter, it's not from one particular line, it's from the, the impression of the chapter altogether. Uh, where this wise man, he's saying the right things that we want to challenge ourselves, we want to laugh, we want to be cheerful, we want to reconcile ourselves, we want to discover some truth. He's saying the right things, but his attitude towards it, and maybe even his justification of it, are completely wrong. Uh, and this is a this is an interesting thing that I found in Nietzsche and Zarathustra and pretty much any good thinker that you come across, and trust me, the opposite case. People who don't understand this message are the majority. Most people that you meet won't understand this point. But you can have the right message, but the totally wrong way of doing it. Uh, I think it was some Alan Watts lecture, uh, he's some sort of Western Buddhistic type philosopher. Uh, he quotes a, an ancient Chinese proverb that says, Give the wrong man the right means, and the right means work in the wrong way. Something to that effect, that if you take the right way of doing something but give it to the wrong person and they do it the wrong sort of way, it's not going to work. Uh, so you can sort of think like, here's a good example. So if I were going to go to a bar and I want to talk to uh, a girl at the bar and like strike up a nice conversation and start flirting with her, and this is certainly true for me in the past, I've been crap at that. Um, I would look at people who are good at that thing and ask them how to do it or try and mimic what they do. And so they could break down, oh, you want to go up to them, smile, like... Uh, crack a joke, make make friends with her friends, like touch her, touch her arm, whatever. And you could they could break it into a list of moves to make. But if I go in with the wrong energy or the wrong sort of disposition, or if I'm not confident, the physical cues and sort of I hate to say vibe, but like all the the psychological impact that m me going into that situation with the wrong disposition and sort of my shoulders slump forward and maybe not talking as loudly and maybe the smile's a bit too forced, all these like minor cues that are completely different in my approach versus the cool guy's approach will completely change the situation.
so where he might go in and be able to sort of very easily and smoothly create this fun situation where he's working the group of people and making friends with people if I were to sort of go in and stumble in and be a bit awkward and not have the right timing with the things I said or maybe say my sentences a bit awkwardly, I'm doing the same things on paper, but I'm doing it a completely different way. And the outcome is completely different. And so I, I love that way of thinking because there's it's going to come up in other aspects of Nietzsche's writing. It's not so much an explicit message, but it does definitely come up where there are certain things certain people can do that other people just can't. And it has to do with a whole bunch of like background psychological factors or experiential factors, like how much experience you have at something that, you know, maybe if I got more experience to talking to girls and worked off some of the nervousness and grew a bit more confident in my approach, then through time I might not have as many of those weird slight cues that turn people off compared to the first hypothetical, purely hypothetical, let me remind you, situation that I described. Uh, and so getting, getting back to this section here, um, it, it's a similar thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about this book, this, this sort of old man talking about sleep and virtue. He's saying a lot of the right things. Yeah, you want to overcome yourself. You want to discover truth. You want to do X, Y, and Z through the course of your life to challenge yourself to become a better person. But the, the emphasis is wrong or the focus is wrong. Um, whereas this guy is sort of saying you want to do these things to sleep soundly, to be content. Uh, he's sort of nailed the psychology and the some of the philosophy of like what it takes to be a fulfilled human being um, just through the course of your day like you want to master new skills you want to have some jokes you want to have some laughs with friends you want to discover some interesting truths um, but the attitude that he's portraying his ideal person is having is sort of a doing it out, out of almost necessity just sort of, yeah, okay, I'll put in my time. I'll do the 10, I'll do the 10, I'll do the 10, I'll do the 10. Um, but I'm not going to push myself too hard. I'm going to do it so that I sleep soundly. I'm not doing it out of sort of a passionate necessity to improve myself. I'm doing it so that, you know, I don't get bored, that I can go to sleep, that I can be fairly confident in my abilities, that I can sort of sort of be on the right track. Um and even though Zarathustra doesn't really get into it in this section, simply because the rest of the book is sort of built on the theme of this, Zarathustra and Nietzsche's message is that this self-improvement and being the best of who you are and trying to align yourself with that aspect of reality, it's not, it's not something you should take a sort of lackadaisical attitude towards. It's something that you should be in love with, that you should be crazy about, that you should absolutely want more than anything else. Um, otherwise, you simply won't have, you won't have the passion behind what you need to do to get over certain hurdles that you face along the way. Um, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this quote on the show before. Uh, but there's a great Steve Jobs quote that a friend of mine shared with me, and I use it all the time in reference to this sort of stuff. Um, Steve Jobs said that 
and of course, just like every other quote that I don't have written in a book in front of me, I'm going to butcher this massively. Uh, Steve Jobs essentially said uh, that passionate people are essentially insane uh, in the sense that in the course of doing something, the passionate person will come across an obstacle or a hurdle that is so high or so hard to get past that any sort of sane, rational person weighing the pros and cons of spending a lot of time dealing with that obstacle, they'd simply say, it's not worth it. As a rational person, I'm going to walk away and do something else. Whereas the passionate person gets so involved, so in love, so crazy about whatever it is that they're pursuing, that they're willing to put in whatever time and energy it takes to get past any hurdle. And so whether you're developing a certain skill or aspect of yourself or trying to make yourself the best version of yourself as possible, that passion, that sort of mad desire to be the best version of yourself as possible is the attitude that Zarathustra and Nietzsche throughout the rest of this book want you to have. Uh, it's the underlying thing from, it's the underlying trait that sort of pins together what we talked about in the first section about the spirit becoming a camel, the spirit becoming a lion, the spirit becoming a child. You need to be so in love with becoming a better version of yourself or becoming better at a certain thing that your your mind is willing to bow down like the camel and take up take upon itself the greatest things that have ever been thought or done. Your 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 spirit, your mind needs to be so in love with the idea of getting better that it sees those idols that it's looking to as being almost these perfect wonderful instances of the characteristics or traits that it's trying to get better at that when it comes to thinking that you could be equal to those people or heroes or ideals that you hold up in your uh, up on a pedestal somewhere that it's hard for you to think that you could even be that good you need to be so passionate that you go through those transformations of the spirit, that you are the camel, that you have to become the lion to sort of kill those things you find holy. And you have to you have to love what you're working on so much that you eventually become that child who's so skilled at the things that you're doing and so capable of operating within those spheres that you can be like a kid at play who's just you know, playing creatively with whatever and, and, and very masterfully operating in that sphere and creating new ways of doing things. And so right after that first section where Nietzsche sort of says, this is the mindset, or these are some of the mental transformations that we're going to go through, the very second section is sort of a, it's sort of a message of, okay, that's the that's the transition that our brains are going to go through, our minds are going to go through in the areas that we're focusing on. And in the second section, he says, along with that, or even to necessitate that, we need to have this attitude of passionate, uh, passionate love for what we're working on and not just, oh yeah, I'll overcome something because, you know, it'll make me feel slightly better, slightly more fulfilled. Oh, I'll discover some truth because it helps me sleep at night and I'll, I'll be friends with my neighbor. It, it, it's a difference in attitude. A lot of the same things are going to happen. But Nietzsche and Zarathustra very much want you to be much more passionate about what you're, wor what you're working on.
and I've used a number of different examples of some of the areas that you could do that in if you want to become better at a certain sport or you want to get better at a certain subject or you want to get better at your job. Um, it helps if you're that passionate, but a lot of times we're, we're faced with things in life that you know, we're not exactly that passionate about. Um, so for instance, um, a lot of people work jobs that by no means are they passionate about. Um, <laughs> I think this is one of the biggest problems with at least young people uh, that I've noticed growing up with is that there's this huge emphasis on doing what you love. And quite frankly, I don't think that many people get to do that. And I think that setting that expectation in all of these young, impressionable people's minds is it's good because it gives people dreams and gives people the motivation to work towards something, but it's also bad because I think it makes people have unrealistic expectations of A, that they'll be able to achieve their dreams, which not everyone will be able to. B, it will give people dreams that are impossible to achieve anyway or too idealistic uh, in the sense that, you know, not everyone's going to be an astronaut or also saying that, see, you can find a job that, like, is entirely interesting all the time, which just isn't the case. And I think that when we try and apply Nietzsche and Zarathustra to our own lives, instead of trying to make ourselves passionate about, you know, filling out that Excel spreadsheet or filling out that PowerPoint or, you know, taking a customer's order or something, uh, one thing I found very helpful in my own life working a, a job in business uh, is that even though I don't necessarily find every aspect of my job interesting, I can look at each aspect of my job and reinterpret it uh, in a way that allows me to see it as being sort of a, a stepping stone upon which I'm building myself. And so I'm able to take my self-development, my self-growth uh, which is, for me, like a huge, huge thing that I care about. I, I've always wanted to have the best worldview. I've always wanted to have the best way of looking at things. More recently, I've, I've wanted to develop certain personal skills, interpersonal skills that will help me, not just at work, but in my life. And if I can use the different things at work and focus on them in a different way that allow me to assign my own individual goals on top of them, then I can sort of channel some of my passion and energy to work. And so instead of, say, looking at, you know, the countless meetings that you're in at work as, oh, crap, I got to go have this meeting about what products on the shelves or how we're going to ship this thing, uh, which not many people are probably passionate about. If instead of seeing the meeting in terms of what you're actually talking about, you see the meeting in terms of this is an opportunity for me to become a more effective teammate or a more effective speaker. Uh, for me recently, I've taken it upon myself to try and have the shortest possible meetings that I can. And so instead of, you know, talking a lot or talking around a bunch of issues or over explaining things, I'm challenging myself to become as effective as possible at holding a short meeting where everyone walks out of there knowing exactly what needs to be done with no one being alienated or feeling bad. And so I've been able to take a rather mundane thing 
and take something that I'm passionate about, my self-development, in this case, effective communication, effective delegation, effective teamwork, and map that on to what I'm actually doing and thereby be able to become a bit more passionate or a bit more interested in what I'm doing. Uh, and so, <laughs> a rather long tangent, coming back to Nietzsche and Zarathustra, yeah, they want us to live passionately. They want us to really care about something and to, I guess, deal with the objection that some people might have about, oh, you know, I'm working this job or I'm, I don't, I, I, there's nothing I'm passionate about in the work that I'm doing. I challenge you guys to really take a look at things you are passionate about. For me, it's self-development. I imagine if you're listening to this, like you like that idea too. And trying to figure out what could I do better in and how can I take some of the mundane things about my day and use those to get better. And so I don't have much to actually say about any of the particular sentences in this section. Um, really for me, since this is the second section, right after the sort of transformations of the spirit, um, I see it as Nietzsche in an indirect sort of fictional Zarathustrian way giving us the message that you're along with the goal of what you're trying to do, trying to overcome yourself, discover truth, be cheerful and happy and, and laugh a lot, which are certainly things Zarathustra believes in and we're going to see that a lot throughout this book. He's really setting up the attitude that we have to have. Uh, to really care about what we're doing and really focus on what speaks to us as being something that we're passionate about. It's not about having all the virtues, like this old man says. It's not about trying to just get through the day so that you can go and have a sound sleep. Sometimes if you're so passionate about something, you work into the small hours of the morning working on it. Um, it's not about just sort of doing the things that the human biology needs to, you know, feel somewhat satisfied. It's about pursuing that burning desire and dealing with some of the consequences of that. Maybe bad sleep, bad relationships with your neighbors, bad whatever. And and so I think as we get into this book, along with the things that we've learned in, in chapter one, I really want you guys to keep in mind like, what is my attitude towards myself? What is my attitude towards the things that I care about? Do I really, really care about one particular thing or a, a group of things? Do I want to become a better person? Do I want to become more skilled in a particular area? How can I do that? Is there a way in my day-to-day -day life I can use my daily routine or my daily activities as a vehicle on top of which I sort of build aspects of myself and really challenge yourself to take it seriously and do things passionately. Because that way, just like we said about Steve Jobs, when you come across the obstacles that will get in your way in the developmental areas that you care about, you're going to be so in love with the idea of being a better version of yourself or so in love with the idea of some of the benefits of being a better version of yourself that you're willing to put in the time and effort to get through those barriers. And in doing so, put your, your mind, put your spirit, put your worldview through the sorts of transformations that were outlined in chapter one, 
where you know you take the things that you love and put them on a pedestal and really work towards those things then once you've built yourself up higher and higher based on your emulation of those idols being able to say no now i'm the equal of these idols develop that line in your spirit to say i am the equal of these things i i need to get past them and develop my own ways of doing things that i there are no more examples around me for and then be creative like a child and just become truly amazing at what you can do and who you are and again i've said it before I have found nothing more satisfying in my life than becoming a more developed version of myself and being able to take on challenges that no one else would really be able to take on or approach a situation with, with the right amount of tact and skill informed by these things that I've worked on in such a way that, you know, I'm the cool guy at the bar to harken back to my earlier example. Or in a meeting at work, I can break unpleasant news or, or say something a little, bit, uh, a little bit that goes against the wishes of my boss, but do so in a way that is skillful and informed and, and positive and constructive and that doesn't get me in trouble. By becoming the master of who you are and the master of your virtues and becoming a better version of yourself, you become just so skillful at dealing with the world in a way that is truly, uh, truly just wonderful to experience. And as we've mentioned a number of times, it's going to suck. Parts of it are going to suck. You're going to come up against obstacles you don't know how to get past. You're going to come up against obstacles where you, you look at yourself and you're so disappointed in who you are and the fact that you can't get over that hurdle or that you've been so dumb that you've missed something completely up until now that you, you know anyone else could have seen. Um, but really, having that attitude of passionate, wanting so strongly to be a better version of yourself, um, it's sort of that fire under your ass that <laughs> it hurts, but it gets you going and it gets you going to good places. Um, so that's chapter two, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for joining and, uh, and I'll see you in chapter three. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for joining. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. If you know anyone who you think might like this, your friends, your family, your loved ones, coworkers, anyone who you think might be interested in the message, feel free to share with them. It's very helpful to me, very helpful to the show and gets out some of the hopefully good ideas that we're trying to spread. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, very hateful things to say, you can reach me on my website at alexdrake.ca. I'm also on Twitter at, at alexjdrake. Um, feel free to subscribe in iTunes, rate in iTunes. Anything you can do to help the show is great, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks.